Hey everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is your weekly X-Men podcast where we rank every story from A to Z. I'm Adam. And I am Zach and Adam. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, I hey. Mean, I gotta ask you a question. Uh, yeah. yeah. You're, you're involved in the United States Education Program, correct? Yes, absolutely. On a daily, uh, week, week daily basis. <laughs> A week daily basis. Mm, that's a that's an odd unit of measurement, but I'll take it. Uh, what are your feelings on history class? You know what? Uh, it, it presented in a in a in a fun and interactive way. It, it can be great. You know, I think we've come a long way from uh, Miss Karpowitz in my tenth uh, grade class and her overhead projector um, and her transparencies about World War II. Um, I think we're really moving on to hands-on constructive, uh, constructive learning. So um, today, I think we've got a little bit of a history class, don't we? We do. This is a, like, pull, pull up a chair, uh, get out your notebooks, because like the uh, state and local government professor I had in my 11th grade, technically going to a community college, uh, history and government class, uh, you're just going to have to verbatim write down everything we say word for word. And those are going to be your notes for the episode. I'm not even joking. It was a pain. Oh, yeah. Those days of uh, slideshows and, uh, and and extensive note taking in college. I'm oh, there was no behind there me. was no slideshows. Oh, no slideshow. Just just lecture. No, he just talked mm-hmm. in front of us in a rehearsed script. He had wow. very good Bill Cosby-esque sweaters. Uh, so he had a lot going for him. I, I Not my favorite teacher. <laughs> Regardless, we are talking about history. Uh, and yes. we're talking about history because Charlie Phillips went on over to patreon.com slash Xavier Files. And he said, you know what? History is written by the victors. And do you know what wins wars? Money. <laughs> so he gave us money. Uh, to fight the battle of ill-informed X-Fans. Mm. Uh, so, Charles, thank you so much. Uh, if you want to be like Charles, you can go right on over to that website. We'll talk about that later at the end of the episode. Uh, but like him, uh, you could have an entire episode crafted around one story of your suggestion. And Charles found a loophole, Adam. Did you know that? That Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of a loophole here. Because what he chose is basically all of X-Men. Yeah, he chose all the stories, uh, <laughs> which is like wishing for no wishes. And we are not the genie. Uh, if we were the genie, I, you're older. I think I have a more Robin Williams energy, though. Yeah. Wait. wait do we? Oh. Are we each picking a genie? <laughs> Here's what I'd say. I was going to say that would default make you the Will Smith genie. But instead, I'll be the Robin Williams genie. And you be the Dan Costanella genie from uh, Aladdin 2, The Return of Jafar? Dude, that's not nice. I want to be the... Uh, I He's be Homer the... Simpson! I, fair, but I would prefer <laughs> to be the, the duck genie from DuckTales the movie. I'll <laughs> accept that. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, uh, we're talking about X-Men Great Design. 
Yes. Ed Pisker's uh, magnum opus, his lifelong dream to summarize the entire history of the X-Men in six issues and how many pages? This 40 is... pages an issue. Yeah. This is uh, quite an undertaking. It's big. So for those of you who don't know, Ed Piscor, he is a cartoonist. Yes. Like a pure cartoonist. He writes, draws, colors, letters. He does everything in all of these books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very famous for uh, the Fantagraphics series that he did uh, called Hip Hop Family Tree. So um, if you're interested in, you know, checking out what Ed Pisker is all about, check it out. He's a cool dude. Yeah, it's, this is an interesting story. So it legitimately is taking all of X-Men from, let's say, X-Men number one Mm -hmm. up through uh, Extinction Agenda, more or less. And yeah. I thought we were going to get to Mutant Genesis, and we don't really. Um, We kind of... All right, we we should pause and not talk about the end yet, because I think that's a separate conversation. It is. Um, But you're right. It it pretty much goes from Silver Age all the way through Extinction Agenda, um, which is a huge amount of story to try and cover in such a short period of time. Um, And he has a very interesting way of doing that. Yeah, so... He breaks it up into three chapters, and by he, I mean I'm pretty sure Marvel broke it up into three chapters, uh, because <laughs> For he could only reasons. Yeah, he could only put out so many, and they didn't want to put out number three, you know, eight months after number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first, the first chapter, first two books are the Silver Age. Yes. It honestly, the first one is everything that happens before X Men number one, which some of it's told in. From flashbacks, some of it is just bringing continuity and making it explicit. It's very yes. interesting. This is, mm-hmm. I would, I would argue, my favorite issue of the entire run. The the pre X Men one issue. Yes. Yeah, I can get behind that. Um, it, it, if you are interested in X lore and you kind of want to get a solid idea of what the basis of the series is before you start reading about what even happens in the series, it, you could do worse. What, what's interesting about it is it takes a lot of desperate threads and weaves them together in a coherent way that hadn't really been done before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. And he he does this thing where he keeps the Silver Age going, but gives it a heft. He gives it an actual driving force so that all those weird stories about the X-Men fighting odd aliens and stuff have meaning and have consequence to the Dark Phoenix saga. They're all looking for the Phoenix well, and I think that that's pretty important to note right off the bat is that this is not just a strict retelling. It is also an interpretation. Um, it's a remix. So that, yeah, it, that's, a, that's a perfect way of putting it. It's a remix, and we're getting Pisker's overlapping ideas of how these stories could converge all the way through issue six. Um, and it's, it's a pretty cool way of exploring this because not only are you getting uh, – you know, actual X-Men history, but you are also getting a new interpretation of it, which is pretty fresh. It is. I like, I like what Pisker does in streamlining the X-Men as a story. I love his art. Let's, you know, we focused on his story a lot, but he has a gritty is not even the right word for it. It's a little bit of a dirty cartoony feel kind of like, you know, comics with an X. 
mm. in the seventies and eighties. Sure. Uh, yeah, but it's, yeah, go ahead. It's also told very similar to like a bio comic or something like that. Like Fantagraphics could have put this out and no one would have batted an eye. Yeah, it's definitely tapping into like a zine aesthetic, an indie comic aesthetic. Um, you know, there are, are some of the, the drawings almost have sort of a Dan Klaus kind of feel to them. Um, he's evoking a, a, almost a Silver Age line quality. Um, mm-hmm. And these books are designed to look somewhat aged. You know, the none of the pages, one of the coolest things that he does in terms of color design is that the pages are not white. The pages are sort of this off, uh, you know, khaki parchment color so that when he does use an actual bold white, because even the white of the the um, speech bubbles are not completely white, mm-hmm. they're still utilizing the, the um, background of, of the page. So when he does use a white, it's like, wow, this is like very, very bright and brilliant on the page. He also uses a unique style zipatone on every page. Mm-hmm. He doesn't just copy like three individual ones across the entire book, which is a wild touch on his part. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the level of craft that went into this is uh is is pretty immaculate. Um and the page layouts are vastly different. I mean, he's generally sticking to uh four horizontal rows and three um three vertical rows to to divvy up his 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 pages but even within that kind of grid structure that he's using he breaks things down into such small pieces sometimes that you can have a page with you know um you know 16 panels on it or or more depending on how much action and how much history he needs to pack into a single page yeah he his craft is great. One thing that I really love about these is if you have the books physically in just the floppies, mm-hmm. they've got a heavier stock cover, so it already yes. feels better. The pages are a different stock. They feel different. They smell different. They are – it seems like a unique thing. There's no ads until the very end of the book. Like right. he made it so that it's not broken up by stuff. And even it, then, there's maybe like what? two ads maybe three the inside covers have ads and then there's usually an ad before um what he does at the end of each issue which i also think is really cool is you know he sets up a a bibliography Mm -hmm. so there's an additional reading section at the end of each issue that gives you um where to go next you know if you want to learn what the story was behind this particular page in the book he's he's pointing you in the right direction yeah it's very interesting it's this is this is an experiment. Mm-hmm. It's a mostly successful experiment. Where do you find that it doesn't necessarily line up, like doesn't live up to its expectations? Because I, I know where it doesn't necessarily work for me. Um, and I, I can't tell if it's because of my expectations of what I thought the book was going to do. Or it's just the way it was made? For me, there's a chunk in the middle. Okay. Uh, I think it's issues four and five are kind of the weakest for me. Because what they are is you get to the Dark Phoenix saga, and -hmm. then you have to get through Inferno (laughs) in two issues. Yeah. So even more than the Silver Age issue, 
uh, the second Silver Age issue, Piscor is kind of going from plot point to plot point to plot point, just jumping. Mm-hmm. And there doesn't there doesn't seem to be the same narrative heft, the same push that you got with, okay, well, you know, all these weird things are happening in the Silver Age, but it's all towards the Phoenix, and it's all towards Dark Phoenix Saga. It was all moving to something, where this is moving to something that I like the way it resolves itself in issue six, mm-hmm. but it doesn't move there with the same amount of gravitas, and it doesn't land as well as it did earlier. Well, I do think that there... <sighs> I think that a lot of us reading the first couple of issues and seeing the remix quality that he was bringing to this assumed that there would be some kind of twist, especially in the final issue to kind of the entire framing device that he's using here is that the watcher is looking down on the 616 and, uh, and, and re- retelling this story, um, which is a, it's a cool idea. Um, but I kind of expected him to have a, a different, maybe a little bit more out there take for the end. Um, That's not necessarily what we get. Um, We do get a resolution that ties together sort of an alternate version of what could have happened with days of future past. And then it's the, if we're going to spoil the end of grand design right now. So if you don't, if you haven't read uh, extinction issue two, which came out earlier this year, uh, stop, read it, come back. But, um, it's supposed to be a continuity loop. So I'm supposed to finish reading uh, the sixth issue of this and go back and pick up uh, issue 143, which I'm assuming has some sort of uh, personal significance for Ed. No, that's just the issue after days of future past. Okay. Hey, so why not? The the way it loops loops back is it's oops uh, guys. Uh, They accidentally caused the days of future past in this one. Right. Uh, So they fix that. Because that story actually doesn't get told when it sequentially should get told. Mm-hmm. It throws off everything. And this ties in, you know, the Extinction Agenda stuff to, okay, wait, now anti-mutant bigotry is on the rise. Yeah. And makes a Days of Future Past happen, which is an interesting idea. I don't think it's the best executed idea in the book. Yeah, I think, I want to be clear that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this almost from, uh, I feel like we're nitpicking a little bit because the the goal of this is definitely achieved the Mm -hmm. idea of taking this unique both both visual and storytelling approach to to doing this series is is 100 achieved um it, it is an amazing artistic thing that to look at these six issues and if you are a fan of X-Men, like, you gotta check this out. Like, it's just so cool and filled with so many little nuggets from all of different points of continuity that, that it's amazing. But I do think if we just, you know, take away the, the artistic achievement of it, it as a story, you know, just looking at it from that perspective, I think it does leave a little bit to be desired. Well, I was, I was uh, talking to somebody about this earlier this week while I was rereading it. This is so much information that it's it's like an index. Yes. It's, this is this is this thing. Go to here. Now, this is the actual story. Mm-hmm. It's like fast forwarding through the X-Men history, which for someone like me who knows that what the X-Men history is, it's great. Uh, but then also there's a part where he introduces uh, Nathan Christopher Charles Day Spring, Ascani Sun Summers as a baby. <laughs> yeah. And then says, hey, this baby's going to be important. 
And then the baby gets kidnapped in Inferno and then doesn't really show up anymore. Mm. And then Cable shows up later. And I know that that's Cable. And you know that that's Cable. But if I handed that to my wife, who knows that Cable is Scott Summers' son, I think she knows that. She doesn't know it's Madeline Pryor's son. Man, I should talk to my wife about Madeline Pryor. Uh. Anyway, but like you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't make that connection. You wouldn't have any idea. There is yeah. weird dropped things that only an X-Men fan would pick up on, but they seem to be like kind of important things. Well, I, I think you're making a good point, and that is that especially the Silver Age stuff seems to be kind of exhaustive in its um it's very complete, you know. Um, I don't feel like we're losing much there, but as we get up towards the nineties, where we get towards the end of this, like past Inferno, it, it has so much still to tell. And it's such an overwhelming thing to kind of fit all of this into these six issues that I, I agree. Like at a certain point, he does have to kind of like take a step back from, telling every little nitty gritty detail but by doing that it sort of doesn't live up to what he starts off doing yeah like he tells the story of iliana going to limbo on octopusheim or island m as we're now calling it i guess uh and her uh coming back as an adult or you know a teenager and then mm-hmm. it never comes up again <laughs> it doesn't well, even come up during limbo or inferno yeah, but that's also because he's making a specific decision to not branch out. You know, he's very intelligently not touching things like New Mutants for very long. He he does introduce them, but it he's not going to go through their entire... Uh, but that, that introduction is all around an issue of X-Men. Right, exactly. So the X-Men remain the focus. Um, and I, I honestly just feel terrible critiquing this in, in, in any negative light because... I just feel like this is more than maybe more than just about almost anything we've talked about on the show. This is such a passion project for an individual. Oh yeah, like, absolutely. Ed has talked about this many times in interviews and, and online about how this is something he's dreamed about doing since he was a kid. And the fact that not only has he accomplished this amazing task, I mean, I I'm looking at the floppies right now and you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's a good I think two inches tall of comics that, you know, probably took him a, a great deal of time to get out um, in, in such a good, good schedule. I think really, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it was not like over several years that these got put out. Uh, it felt like it, I think it was 18 months at the Something most, like that. right. Yeah. Uh, over two summers. So uh, no, no, no pun implied there, but uh, it, it's just, it's an amazing achievement. So, if it doesn't necessarily live up to its original premise, like I almost just don't care. Cause I, you know, part of me is just like amazed that Marvel published this and very happy that he got, got to do the experiment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I've, I've been critiquing it a bit because that's what we do. That's what we do. Yep. Yep. But this is still an amazing achievement. And even when it doesn't land as well as it should, it's interesting. Yes. It's unlike anything else that's out there from the big two. And I'm excited to see with stuff like this, with uh, uh, like Zdarsky and Bagley's Spider-Man life story, and with Tom Scioli's uh, Fantastic Four grand design that's coming out yep. soon. Yeah. They're embracing the, 
hey, let's just let someone do something weird. Mm-hmm. Let's just let someone channel their vision through this and see what happens. And I'm excited for more of that stuff. Me too. I, I love Tom Scioli's work and a uh, big fan of his Transformers versus G.I. Joe. Um, still have re- yet to read his GoBots. Um, Wait, but have heard... you have you What's read that? his Transformers versus G.I. Joe the movie? I have. Yeah, it's absolutely bananas. Guys, if you don't know about this comic, uh, Tom Scioli did a Transformers versus G.I. Joe comic, which was what, like six issues? Right. Well, no, it actually, I think it's actually like 13 issues long. It, it I don't know. I, mean, I haven't read it. Yeah, it's uh, very good. I think I own it. I just haven't read it. Uh, I need to. It's pretty wild. <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely like just, it's colored with crayons, guys. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his Transformers versus G.I. Joe, the movie, is the comic book adaptation of the movie adaptation of that comic book. The movie part doesn't exist, though. Yeah. That is a very, very, like, meta-meta thing that is just... When I picked that up, I was like, what am I looking at here? Uh, like, and then when you realize what the conceit is, it, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So, looking forward to seeing more Grand Design-esque things from, you know, some more unique artists. And um, I I don't know. This is going to be a tricky one to rank, I think. Because we do rank things here. We have a long list. Our mm-hmm. list is 200 and... 64 is it 264 264 264 stories long starting with uh the dark phoenix saga and ending with the draco there's a bunch of stuff in between you can Mm -hmm. look online Uh, it's in the (laughs) show notes every week uh green design i would say let me throw this out here yeah go ahead i think it's definitely definitely better than uh Number 38, X-Men Legacy 300, which is the uh, uh, Forget-Me-Not Forget me not. Yeah. story. Forget-Me-Not. I think it goes above that for sure. Okay. Yeah, I, I think just standing on its own feet as this, you know, this artistic achievement, it, it's definitely really cool. Um, I don't know that it's going to crack the top 25 for me, just in terms of you know, classic X-Men stories. Because number 26 Um, is Life Death, and Life Death is very similarly, like, this weird, unique story, especially for its time, mm -hmm. that's heavily driven by, in this case, Barry Windsor Smith's art. Yeah. And I think Life Death is a little better. I think if I was going to put it somewhere, I would probably put it at... um, I, I'm going to suggest that it would go in between Rosenberg's New Mutants Dead Souls and right below that, which would put it above the first round of All Red and Milligan's Ecstatics. I think that's fair. That would make it the new number 30. An incredibly good showing on this list for Mr. Piscor. Yeah. And congratulations, Ed. Um, before we talk about the next story, I, I just want to plug, uh, he does this absolutely i think i've mentioned this on the on the show before but he does this absolutely awesome youtube series called cartoonist kayfabe and if you haven't checked it out go on youtube and 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 check it out but they go through old issues of wizard magazine page by page and bring out the comic books they actually have the, the 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 floppies of just about everything they talk about in each issue such a cool comics history thing so uh check that out 
awesome, awesome, awesome. Now, uh, next on our list uh, is another history story. In fact, this is the uh, issue of comics that most inspired Ed to do Grand Design, he said. Yeah, uh, this is Uncanny X-Men 138. Um, you also at, at home might, as I do, have this reprinted as classic X-Men issue number 44, um, which yeah. was an incredibly important issue to me as a kid. I'd like you to expand on that because I have some thoughts on that, but I want to hear yours because you actually had it as a kid. Yeah, um, I obviously did not have Uncanny X-Men 138, um, but I, I I think, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show, but like I had grandparents who, um, you know, wanted to order everything out of a catalog for me. And mm-hmm. luckily for me, uh, I think both Sears and JCPenney both had comic book starter packs that you could get in the, in the, in the like later half of the mid to late eighties. And so for Christmas, I would just get these like giant packs of like 50 to a hundred random issues of comics. And it would be like a random issue of the, of amazing Spider-Man or West coast Avengers. And I didn't know what the heck was happening in any of these. So I remember very specifically getting like some random issues of uncanny X-Men and I had no idea what was going on in the book, but I also got classic X-Men 44, which it explains what X-Men is about <laughs> from the Silver Age to the end of the Dark Phoenix saga. And I was like, oh my God, this is like my personal Bible. This is so cool. I think that's that's fascinating to me. Because when, when I was reading the Claremont stuff for the first time as a youth, uh, I had it in the Essentials. Yes. Which were the paperbacks. So I just, I knew everything. It, yep. wasn't, it wasn't hard for me because it was like, oh, it's right there. Yep. And now, nowadays, you have Marvel Unlimited, so you can just have everything. Exactly. But you couldn't before. You no. didn't know what was going on. So having this issue coming after the most important X-Men event of all time. Say, hey, uh, by the way, this is what you missed. This is everything <laughs> else. Well, this is the kind of issue that you don't see anymore. You know, because we do assume that people are going to go back and, you know, see these trade reprints or or have a subscription to Marvel Unlimited and and they're going to go back and they're going to, you know, they're going to follow the run or, or, you know, at least have read enough to keep up with what's going on currently. There there were no trade paperbacks at that point. You know what I mean? There was no uh, epic collection. There were no Marvel essentials. So you just had the random issues that you had in your collection. And so an issue like this is really vital. If you wanted to know, like it it is a literal history lesson. It's fantastic. This is Chris Claremont and John Byrne, by the way. Yes. Uh, But it's done well. Uh, Byrne does a really good job uh, drawing all this stuff in X-Men history while still making it feel cohesive as John Byrne style. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it, I like it a lot. It's it's a good series. Like, realistically, you don't really need to read this issue. <laughs> like, today. No. Nowadays, you don't need to read this issue. But at the time, it was great. I know I've talked about it on the show before, but I spent a lot of time when I was younger reading the DK Ultimate Guide to X-Men, written by Peter Sanderson. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, because that was kind of your guide uh, growing up to, to what was I mean, going on in continuity. That's what this is. Yeah. It's a, hey guys, uh, we know this is confusing. This could help. Mm-hmm. And it's 
it's done well, it does give a little bit more breathing room to all of X-Men history well, than uh, Grand Design's able to. Yeah, you can see, though, the the very, very direct line between Ed Pisker reading this probably as a kid um, yep. and thinking like, hey, how cool would it be to do this for all of X-Men, <laughs> you know, especially the 90s era. So, you know, there's even just the way the, the pages are laid out. You can kind of see what his inspiration was. Um, Absolutely. He's taking it directly from this. Um, uh, the other really cool thing about having the classic X-Men issue is this has one of my absolute favorite backup stories, which is the story of Rogue kissing Cody, um, which is written by Anne Nascenti. And having only read anything about Rogue as an adult, reading a story about her as a kid and having this like vital moment and then coming home and realizing that Mystique is her mom that blew me away as a kid. I was just like, what in God's name am I reading? This is so cool. And I think this issue is largely responsible for hooking me on the, on the franchise. That's awesome. That is like really neat to hear. Yeah. So let's, let's be honest though. This is, this was essential for a time. I would not call it an essential issue today, which makes it hard to rank. Because it's it's like ranking a, it's like ranking a clip show episode of an old sitcom. <laughs> I, I was going to say that, yeah, yeah, you know, the idea that they didn't have a script for that week's episode, or the actors were out of town, so they just they they did a clip show, um, and it is John Byrne reinterpreting those events. So if that's interesting to you, great. Um, I would definitely recommend getting the the classic X Men reprint for the backup story. That I mean that that's an outstanding little piece of uh of art there but you're right as a standalone uncanny 138 is non-essential especially if you've you've been reading it as you did zach with with the essentials right uh so here's here's what i'll throw out okay i think this is better than the x-men versus the avengers one through four from the 80s oh that's absolutely. at 189 right now yeah uh is it better than the issues of Uncanny X-Men where Cannonball fights Gladiator and then they do some space stuff at 176? I don't know. I think you're in the right the right realm there though. You know, you're you're in the right part of the list. Um You know, I, I think actually I want to go a little lower. Okay. Uh how about this? Is yeah. it better or worse than the first issue of X-Men? Ever. I think it's better. I don't think it's as good as that issue of Wolverine where they go to the bar and he talks to Nightcrawler and it has that good Assad Ribbit cover. Good. That's a good spot for it right there. I like that's that. That's 184. Okay. I like that. That's a good place for it. Yeah. Also, uh, in this story, John Byrne does draw Kitty wearing a bedazzled shirt that has a cuss on it. <laughs> yes. Yep. So, Which, uh, if anyone except for John Byrne did, it's a derogatory term for a woman. Uh, you can figure it out. But if anyone except for John Byrne did that, it would be hilarious. With John Byrne, it's less so. I guess we've got a kind of. I don't know if we can discern between the John Byrne that of that time. Is, is there a difference? 
I, I uh, someone someone has done a statistical analysis yes on uh essentially 80s marvel comics mm-hmm. in their treatment of female characters yes he does uh, poorly john burns alpha flight does not do well john mm. burns fantastic four does not do well john burns she hulk does not do well mm. all right well anyway we, we spend never meet time. your heroes kids a great artist not a great person right i think we've said speaking of someone else who's a great artist yeah and someone who at least when i've talked to him seems like a great person uh the last story we have is actually and this is kind of a unique thing for us but i really like it for what we're doing here Mm -hmm. this is just one issue in a larger story but from an x-men focus this is the only issue that matters, and it does tell a complete story from start to finish, so I think we can count it. Yeah, uh, this is Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross's Marvels number two, which is, uh, I believe, titled Book Two Monsters. Guys, if you haven't read Marvels, Marvels is really good. Oh, it's so cool, isn't it? It's just so good. I I love Kurt Busiek's stuff, like... Have you read Astro City yet, Adam? I have not, but you have recommended it many times, and I, it will definitely uh, get read at some point. You know how Brett Anderson uh, did God Loves Man Kills, and that was very good? Mm-hmm. This is what he's been doing besides that. Okay. <laughs> it's so good. It's it's just the idea of Marvels, which is um, the man on the street seeing all of these heroes and all these comic book things happen and reporting on it. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know... A person in a superhero world idea expanded, but instead of what would have been if Marvels came out in 2003, uh, being like, man, superheroes are the worst. This is a dark, gritty world. It's like got a Silver Age hopefulness to it where it's not corny. It just feels optimistic. Mm-hmm. And there's something beautiful about that. Yeah. Uh, it is a really fantastic project that. I think gives a good credence to, you know, what it would actually be like if this was happening. Um, but it does have sort of a, the, the perspective of the narrator is one of awe. And I think that that makes it such an enjoyable read because he is just confounded about what's going on around him. And he, he just wants to engage with that world in, in the best way that he can. And this, to me, is the best of the four issues. Um, and there are other maybe more larger cinematic moments in, in Alex Ross's art that, that might be better than what happens in this issue. But this issue centers around the introduction of the X-Men. And really, the, the heart of this issue is about the, the hatred and the racism against the, the mutants. Um, and it, it, it ends up focusing around this very small little girl who's been abandoned by her parents. And somehow, I, I, I think this is his daughters bring her home. His daughters take them in. Yeah, Phil yes. Shelton, Sheldon, who's the, uh, who's the photographer and the protagonist of this. He's been following superheroes. He sees their rebirth as a story yes. that he wants to capture. Mm-hmm. So while he's caught up with looking up into the sky and seeing the Fantastic Four and seeing Giant Man and seeing all these things, seeing gods like Thor, he is also seeing all this talk about mutants, people who aren't like us, the other. Mm -hmm. And in fact, 
Phil gets caught up in a in a mob, in a racist like lynching mob. Yeah. And yeah. he he says something came over him, and it was just the hate and the energy and everyone saying that these people are bad. These are the enemy. These are the people you should hate. And it gets to a point where, you know, you don't ever learn the X-Men's names. Mm-mm. You see them and you see them as monsters and other in the villain. And you see a moment where they're about, they're attacking the X-Men and Bobby is, uh, wants to start a fight with the humans. And Scott puts his hand on his shoulder and says, Bobby, he's not worth it. Mm-hmm. This isn't worth it. This is not what we do. And it's incredibly powerful. And in that moment, you realize all this is about the irrational hate that is in our world against people of color, against people of different sexualities, against someone who's just from a different country than you, someone Mm -hmm. who worships a different god than you. These are people just like the X-Men. And when the mutant metaphor is done well, these are people. Just like you and me, humans with emotions and soap opera and drama in their lives. And we hate them because they're different. Yeah, there's and a this great, does this well. <laughs> yeah, there's a great moment um, when when uh, Sheldon discovers that the mutant girl is living in his basement. And he starts by thinking that there has been a stray dog in the basement, that the girls have been sneaking food. And he comes face to face with this girl who is not someone who could pass. Um, you know, she she has a, you know, a face with almost no nose, um, these very, very large alien like eyes, um, you know, almost no hair with these little pigtails. And we get to this point as part of that conversation where we go from him assuming there's a stray dog in the basement to him telling his wife she's just a little girl. And that is paired with all of this imagery of the riots and, and you know, the, the language that's being tossed around. I think another thing that, that really is done well with this is that one of the things that I think is difficult about accepting in the silver age that the X-Men are, are and mutant kind in general is quote unquote hated is because they don't really look all that different from the rest of the heroes that are pictured in, in this series. But the way that Alex Ross illustrates them, um, and their their first appearance on the scene, which is told and you know shown in very very stark black and red, that these guys are something a little bit different, and they are something that people are afraid of. Um, it, it's done extraordinarily well. Yeah, the X Men are always painted like a horror comic. Mm-hmm. They're still on model, but it's everything to do with the framing and the lighting. And Ross Ross is a master of the craft for a reason. I think, I think there was, there was a hot second where because Alex Ross was getting paid to do, Hey, do big group shots of silver and golden age superheroes, please. Cause they sell. <laughs> yeah. I, I think people got a little burnt out on Alex Ross and forgot that. Oh wait, he's incredible. Mm. He's a very good storyteller. And this issue also contains some other elements of, uh, you know, just to, to have a stark relief, this is also paired with um, Reed and Sue's wedding, um, which is also part of this particular issue. So we're seeing Sentinels here. Um, the Sentinels are done so well. It's like this stark art deco. Yeah. Uh, vibe, like a, 
the first thing that comes to mind, and this is a bad movie, but Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, terrible Do you remember movie. that? 2004? Yeah. That's like a green screen disaster, but but cool visuals, right? Yeah, it ha- it has that this is a this is a scary pulp noir look to it. Mm-hmm. And it works real well. It sells the Sentinels as horrifying. Um yeah, I think this does uh does wonders. Uh if you've never read it before, you should be able to actually pick up a copy of this in your a local comic store if they if they have a lot of back issues. Um, because they just did for an anniversary edition, um, a reprint of each of the four issues with, uh, really, really beautiful back matter, um, extra illustrations, um, interviews, scripts, uh, and even some bonus art. So they're really, really nice. There's also, um, we're not reviewing this right now, but the, as part of that series, they also released, um, a very short epilogue which is essentially the um, X-Men Christmas story. Yeah, 98, 99? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we get the X-Men in front of the Christmas tree before uh, the Sentinels attack, and it's a, it's a pretty cool, very short thing. Um, it's great. Don't pay five ninety nine for it new. Wait for it on Marvel Unlimited. It's it's really good. It's like 15 pages, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's brief. Um, it is very much an epilogue, but uh, you know you should be able to check this stuff out if you, if you want to see Alex Ross um, doing some really good, uh, beautiful X Men work. So where where do you think this falls on the list, Zach? Where is our highest? Not really an X Men story. Story. Oh boy! Um... Like the what the ones where we stretched. Uh, it's seventy eight. Howard the Duck uh, six or eight through eleven, and this is better than that Howard the Duck story. Oh, absolutely, because. I, I would say that despite the fact that Marvel's as a as a miniseries is not an X-Men miniseries, this particular issue really gets it. Um, it, it nails the characterization, and it, it does something that the Silver Age couldn't necessarily do. And it does something that today's comics can't necessarily do. That's true. Yeah, it, it doesn't always uh, nail it. So, um, yes, I think it's definitely better than uh howard the duck 8 to 11 which uh, i do love but um i mean it's better than number 51 what if wolverine was lord of the vampires i'll say that how do you think it stacks up against something like uh dennis hallam dennis hopeless hallam's uh x-men season one i think that season one's pretty comparable but season one hits doesn't hit as high of highs as this Mm -hmm. i like season one but this is like an essential summation of what the X-Men can and should be. All so right. I, I, I think it's better here. than that. I think it's better than E is for Extinction 1 through 4 from Secret Wars. Mm-hmm. How high are you thinking here then? I, it's not as good as Grand Design and it's probably not as good as that Zorn issue of New X-Men. I... Man, that was that was something that I think it, it maybe doesn't top is number thirty six, which is on uh, New X Men one twenty seven, the Zorn one shot. Um, but I would put it up up above X Club at thirty seven. And you know how much I love X Club. Yeah, guys, uh, it's a good story. It's our new number thirty seven, Marvel's number two. Excellent showing. 
So there you have it. Thanks to Charles Phillips, you know everything about all of the history of the X-Men, right? <laughs> and you can do this show for us now. We can retire finally. Oh, thank goodness. It's been so long. I've been I've been so exhausted. I've just wanted to be done for so many stories. So many stories, so little time. <laughs> uh He's just kidding, folks. We've got still about 500 episodes in us. Um, we will do this until one of us dies. <laughs> you keep saying that. I don't want to do be. Do I? Uh, yeah, you've mentioned our deaths two episodes in a row. It's scary. Have I really? Man, yeah. look, guys, I'm going to be real honest. I don't remember anything that happens after we record one of these things <laughs> until I edit it. And then I edit at speed and a half. There you uh, go. So I only half. No, what's going on there? We sound like chipmunks. Yeah, it's great. <sighs> I have a I have a better sped up voice than you, but you have a better regular voice than me. So it's very frustrating. Zach, I just want to be clear. You have a very lovely voice. I feel like people don't give you enough credit for your voice. And I feel like why? people give me too much credit for mine. Why, thank you, Adam. That's very sweet of you to say. It's, it's true. I, I believe that. Charles went on over to patreon.com slash Xavier Files, and he tossed money our way uh, to get an episode around him. I can tell you right now, there are like 14 spots left in 2021. What? That's wild. Yeah. Uh, They're throughout the year in 2021, just with how some of the Patreon rankings go. Uh, But like, look, this is very popular. Zach, uh, when it, when Zach it it's not these. even 2020. I know. It's very scary to me. <laughs> very scary to me. We're like we're plotting out kind of... years of our lives. Or... Why do you think I've said, until we die? Because <laughs> people won't let us stop. Legally. <laughs> until, legally. Until the heat death of the sun. <laughs> it's nice if you can support the show. It's really fun. If you can't, that's cool too. No, honestly, no sweat. Uh. What else do I normally say here? Well, you got to oh. tell them how to do that. Where do they do? Where do they go? They go to patreon.com slash Xavier Files. Boom. Go there. You'll figure it out, guys. You're smart. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm also online at Xavier Files on Twitter where I say dumb stuff about good comics. And I am also, uh, this is kind of exciting, Hawksbox Talks, uh, which I edit and help contribute to, uh, but 99.9% of the credit should go towards uh, Chris Edelman and Robert Secundus. Uh, Hawksbox Talks are series about the Jonathan Hickman uh, run on X-Men is no longer on XavierFiles.com, where you could find the latest and greatest uh, X-Men news content and stuff like that. Hawksbox Talks is now... Hosted on Polygon.com. Wow. Dude, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, so we're essentially the new McElroy brothers. It took them a year to replace <laughs> them, but they found us. Congratulations. Thank you. It's really cool. Chris and Rob uh, are, again, I keep saying it, they're doing amazing work. They're blowing me away every week. It's ridiculous. I am I am very lucky to be attached to their gravy train. Yeah. Uh also, maybe leave a review on iTunes about this show, or don't. You could get a sticker, probably, though. Yeah, I, as we mentioned last week, if you want a Battle of the Atoms sticker, uh, leave a rating and a review. It could be good, could be bad, doesn't matter. Um, and uh, we've, we've got some stickers for you. In the one day since that episode that first announced this went up, and mm-hmm. us recording this now, we have gotten one review. So, okay, okay. 
So, so still lots of stickers to hand out. <laughs> lots of stickers. But maybe not by the time you hear this. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? We'll see what a week does. We'll see what a week does. Uh, Adam, where else can they find your, uh, your, you know, your slow jams? Uh, guys, you can, you can, you know, really get groovy with my slow jams uh, on Twitter at Arthur Stacy. Uh, I've got new pages of Bish and Jubes, the Cross Time Conundrum. Every X Men Monday at adamrec.tumblr.com. Um, I recently did an episode of WMQ Comics podcast, um, which I believe is called the WMQ and A podcast um, with Dan Grote, and uh, it's cool. It's basically just an interview, mainly about Bish and Jubes, um, which is approaching its end. And uh, I think that I don't. I think it'll be out this week that this is coming out. So we'll, we'll make sure to post that online. Um, Absolutely. And that's good. That's, that's about it. What are we doing next, next week? Next week, we're going to talk about Cable and X-Force. It's yes. going to be fun. You remember how we talked about the Purple Era? We're mm. going to talk about the Purple Era some more. It's good stuff. Cool, man. Sounds good. But it, it is. I'm excited. Maybe we'll have a special guest. Who knows? <gasps> Ooh, secret secrets. But until then, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. Get it!